Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, and uh, we're going to be talking about the sleeping servant and the perishing pagans. I told that title, I think, to some of our staff team this week, and I got a a chuckle out of it. Uh, I I think that's pretty clever. It's two S's and two P's, but it's really what we see in the text. That's why we're going there. The sleeping servant and the perishing pagans. Who are those pagans? They're the sailors who are on the ship. And so we see this danger, we see this fear, we see the Lord stepping in and, and doing some amazing things, and we always need the Lord to step in and do some amazing things. Why? Because there's a lot of danger in this world, right? If there's anything that we've learned from the headlines over the last few weeks, it's that things, circumstances, can quickly change in our lives or in the world at large. I mean, think about it. The Taliban's return to power there in Afghanistan is crippled that nation with fear through their brutality, the tactics that they use. They literally would drive up onto a city and it would cause the soldiers there, maybe in those cities, and the people of the cities to lay down their arms and to surrender without a shot even being fired. That's what's been, being, being happening. That's what has been happening. I'm going to get there this morning. Their brutality. Uh, toward anyone who refuses their way of life means that Christians are in danger. That's why we wanted to pray earlier for them and, and we want to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in harm's way because they're so brutal. They will kill you. They'll execute you for your faith in Jesus Christ. And so we do need to be praying for believers who are there to be strong and to be faithful. I'm purposely saying those two things because it will cost many of them their lives. Now, we want to pray, Lord, if you, in your sovereignty, in your providence, in your goodness, will spare them. Lord, do that. But the greater prayer we ought to be praying for them is, Lord, may they be strong. Lord, may they be faithful till the very end. Because there's more at stake here than just their individual lives. It's the gospel. You see, what we've seen throughout church history, for that matter, what we've seen throughout Jewish history is that when the people of God suffer, the word of God flourishes. In the age of the church, when the church is greatly persecuted, the gospel flourishes and people are drawn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. My prayer is that in Afghanistan and in that whole region that God would use this for the gospel to flourish in a very dark and closed portion of the globe even as they're being persecuted. But you know, as we talk about persecution here in America, we we don't understand this. Christians in America, we really don't know what persecution is. We know the term, we've read some stories, but we've never experienced anything close to persecution. And so we hear about Afghan Christians suffering, and, and our immediate response is to pray for their escape. And why would we want them to suffer? Of course we would not want them to suffer. But we would not wish that on anyone. But yet, for This situation and what's going on in their life, it could be that God in his sovereign plan is going to use them in the face of persecution to boldly proclaim the word of God. Wouldn't it be awesome if a movement of God happened because of what's taking place in that nation we know of as Afghanistan? So this morning, we may not know how to pray for our brothers and sisters over there. We may not know how to pray maybe for our brothers and sisters here in America either. We may not know how to pray for for any type of person in specificity. But we do know what Christians are to do. Jesus commanded his church to do what? Go 
and to tell, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, tells us that we're to go and to make disciples. I, I want to just give you uh, what Billy Graham once said about evangelism. He says, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We're not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. He says, God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. That's what Billy Graham said. The great evangelist of the 20th century reminds us that in every generation there is strategy, there is a focus, there is a responsibility. And and yeah, we want to learn from the past, but we can't do anything about that. Yeah, we want to influence the future, but it's not yet here. And so what do we do? We can focus on today. We can be strategic today. We can be intentional today. What are we to be intentional with? The gospel. That's what the church is commissioned to do. Jesus said to the church, go and make disciples. It's interesting that as we look at the prophet Jonah and we look at his story, God also told him to go. What was he to do? He was to go to Nineveh. He was to go to preach to them, to show them, to remind them, to inform them that God knew their sin. And so when God says, arise and go to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He said no. Instead, what he did is he arose and he fled. He went down to Joppa, he finds a ship, and he begins to head to Tarshish. As we've discovered over the last few weeks, as we've walked through these first few verses of this book, we've discovered that Jonah's disobedience was not just a simple disregard. It was outright rebellion against the lordship of God over his life. And his rebellion was met, as we looked at last week, God's discipline. It's interesting. It's significant that God doesn't, doesn't just say, hey, Jonah, uh, you've, you've kind of crossed the line. What does God do? He hurls a storm at him. The language there, I believe I told you last Sunday, is the same language that is used in other places in the Old Testament of hurling or throwing a spear. So God didn't just say, all right, I want to send a storm your way. No, he cast it toward Jonah. His disobedience was met with the discipline of of God. So God was going to get the attention of this disobedient prophet. We also discover in Jonah's story that the effects of our actions are never isolated to ourselves. It involves everyone who's around us. They always impact other people. And so as we look at verses five and six, as we move on in the story this morning, I want you to see the sleeping servant and these perishing pagans. Look with me as we read verses five and six. The Bible says, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's interesting. As we've seen throughout this story, Jonah is a man. He's the man of God. He's the prophet, but he's running from God. He's actually not just running. He's working against the Lord. He's seeking to subvert the Lord's will, not just for his life, 
but for the Ninevites as well. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach against their sin. Jonah understands the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. He understands that there's an opportunity for them to repent. So this, rather than see them turn to God and be forgiven, he goes the other way, subverting the will of God. And yet he's the prophet. He's the prophet that God has used before. You remember Back in 2 Kings chapter 14, he's the one who spoke to Jeroboam II and says, here's what the Lord's going to do. He's going to expand your borders. He's going to shore everything, everything. He's going to bring protection. God's going to protect his people. And so there was a measure of success in Jonah's ministry back in the day. And yet at this point in his life, his heart's grown dull. It doesn't matter that he falls in the line of Elijah and Elisha. His heart has grown dull. His ears can barely hear the word of the Lord, and his eyes have closed. So he goes down to Joppa. He finds the ship. He finds what he wants, and he tries to get as far as possible from the Lord's call on his life. The Lord hurls the storm. And the storm, the Bible tells us, threatens to break up the ship. The language could even be said that it's, it, it, the ship is about to break up. That's how intense the storm was. And yet Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the ship. While the sailors recognize that this storm is not just an ordinary storm, they've seen about everything the Mediterranean has to offer, and so this storm is different. And so they discern that it is something that's altogether different than what they've seen before. It has to be divine reaction against some sort of sin. There's someone's God on this ship who's ticked off their God, and that God is bringing retribution upon their lives. And so the dire situation compels them to call on, on any and every God imaginable for help. And they're, in the meantime, going to do whatever they can to save themselves. So they begin to jettison the cargo so that they can lighten the load and the ship will not be overturned. And while all of this chaos is taking place, what is God's man doing? He's asleep. He's as dead to the world as he is to God in this situation. The Bible here is drawing some very stark contrast between these pagan sailors, these perishing pagans, and this subversive servant. I want to just draw a few of these out, and then we're going to get into the, to the, what I want you to see in, in, in its entirety, the three lessons that I want to draw from this text. But now I want you to notice these, these contrasts that the Bible seems to be making. First of all, the pagans possessed an acute awareness of danger. See, they recognize the severity of the storm and at the same time recognize the fragility of the ship. They recognize, man, this storm is not typical. This storm is strong. This storm is beyond our abilities. And we're also in a ship that can't withstand the winds and the waves of this ship. They recognize the danger that they were in. Jonah, on the other hand, the contrast is he's oblivious to everything. He has no idea it's storming out there. I told you last week that it's very likely that the waves of the storm and everything that was going on was actually lulling him into deeper and deeper sleep. Oblivious. And yet the sailors were aware. The pagans, knowing the danger that they're in, desired help. We see here in verse 5 that they were looking to religion. They were looking to spirituality for help. They were calling on their gods, right? Right? They're each calling on their gods. These are polytheists. They were convinced that one of their gods was angry with one of them. So they're calling on their God. 
Surely in the midst of all of this calling and praying and whatever else would have been going on, there's confession of sin. I bet every sailor on there was thinking of the litany of things that they had done to make their God mad. They're going through religious ritual. They're sacrificing in some form or fashion, doing whatever they could to appease that particular God. And at the same time, they're trusting in their works. So the Bible tells us they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. So they're trusting and, and looking to religion and spirituality. At the same time, they're looking to their own abilities, their own works, their own endeavors to bring hope. If perhaps their God would not gonna, wasn't going to help them, then they would help themselves. And in contrast, what is Jonah doing? He's supposed to help. He's supposed to help. See, when the captain went below the deck to grab another container to throw overboard, because that's what they were doing to lighten the ship, he probably heard old Jonah cuddled up amongst some, some beans or, or some sort of bag there that he could kind of get comfortable. He snuggled in. He's snoring. The sh- captain comes below. He hears this, walks over and says, get up. Why are you sleeping? Call on your God. And yet Jonah does nothing of the sorts. He wants no help. He desires not to get involved. He definitely doesn't want to pray to the Lord. Jonah here is startled, not just by the captain standing over him, which would have been startling in and of itself, but he's startled because of what's being said. You see, just a few days before, he had heard the Lord say, arise, go. Now it's the same Hebrew language. The captain is saying, arise, pray. This word arise is haunting him here. It's not something he wants to hear. God is saying, get up and go. The captain is saying, get up and pray. And Jonah wants none of it. He does not want help. He doesn't want help. Jonah, if you read on through chapter one, not one time prays to the Lord. Have you ever noticed that before? Have you studied the story of Jonah that He doesn't pray until he's in the belly of the fish in the first part of chapter 2. Jonah never prays in chapter 1. Jonah never calls upon God. Jonah never asks the Lord into that situation to bring hope and healing and, 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 and salvation. Jonah never does that. Why? Because he doesn't want help. He's walking in rebellion. He's spiritually inactive and numb. So as we contrast Jonah's response to that of the sailors, I want you to keep all of that in mind, and I want you to to think along those lines as we look at some lessons to learn as followers of Jesus. Lessons from the life of Jonah, this situation going on here. There's three of them I want you to see this morning. Here's the first one. A believer's faith ought to be evident and known by others. Would you agree with that? That as a follower of Jesus, your faith in Jesus ought to be evident and known by the people that you're around. It ought to be known that you follow Jesus, that you believe in Jesus. And people act funny around those who are really walking with God. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's you that uh, you acted kind of funny when you got around a person who was really walking close and step with the Lord. Or, or maybe someone was kind of acting funny around you. They just don't know how to take you, Right? Came across a couple stories this week from Chuck Swindoll uh, in regards to this, and I think you'll get a good chuckle out of this, and it'll make the point. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says in the first example. He says, once during a flight, a man sitting next to me during mealtime nervously changed his drink request from a Bloody Mary to a ginger ale after learning I was a pastor. 
he leaned over and whispered in a sweat that he'd really meant to order that in the first place. Yeah, because you just make that mistake. I mean, this Bloody Mary comes off when you really meant ginger ale. I'm, I'm sure that happens. And so I told him, hey, no, no worries. Don't worry about it. I, I'm not, I don't mind at all. It's no big deal. And so he misunderstood this, took this as a hint, and in a panic, ordered me a Bloody Mary. When I declined, he got up and changed seats and in his haste spilled the meal all in my lap. People do funny things. He also shares about uh, how he was visiting a member in the hospital. And as he's there coming down this long corridor, this long hallway to the room where the person was uh, there in the hospital. And so as he approached the room, the husband, he says, came out to leave. On his way out the door, he turned, lit up a cigarette and glanced down the hall. He immediately recognized me from a distance. I smiled and, and waved. He nervously waved back. I can imagine like this, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> he nervously waves back and was absolutely at a loss to know how to hide the cigarette. First, I just got a question. What are you smoking for in a hospital? I don't know what era or world this is coming from, but man, it's interesting. Still holding the burning cigarette, he slid his hand into his pocket. I decided to act as though I had not seen it and engaged him in a lengthy conversation. <laughs> it became hilarious. The more we talked, the shorter the cigarette got in his hand, and the more he looked like a chimney. There was smoke swirling out of his pocket, curling up behind his coat collar. Unable to restrain myself any longer, I asked him why he didn't just go ahead and finish the cigarette. Would you believe it? He denied even having a cigarette. Within seconds, he dashed to the elevator and fled, which is probably good. Had he talked any longer, the poor man would have become a living sacrifice. <laughs> People act funny around those who walk with the Lord. Here's the point. People ought to be able to recognize that you know and walk with Jesus. That ought to be evident in your life. This is important, not because it makes them uncomfortable, though it often does. It's important because... They need to know, they need to be aware of the fact that you hold words of comfort and hope in a world that is chaotic and seem to be spinning out of control. They need to know that you have a message for them in this cruel world. Amen. Man, if you're just like everybody else, you can't help them just like everybody else. They need to know that you know Jesus. They need to know that you walk with Jesus. Jesus tells us to do this. Jesus tells us this ought to be part of our life. In Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here is speaking in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's pointing out to believers that they're to live as lights on the hill who are giving light to the world around them. That we're not to just live these closed off lights. And you know, you don't, he even says this, you don't put light under a basket. No, you take the basket off so that it can shine and illuminate the whole room. That's how we're to live. I've mentioned here before, I don't know this to be a fact, but I think it's pretty, pretty true. But Red Lane sets here, I believe, on the highest elevation in the county of Powhatan. That's why we call it Tower Hill, right? If that's not right, then we're close. So save the emails or whatever. <laughs> For sake of illustration, I want you to see this. 
What kind of light should we shine in this county? The brightest light. Everybody ought to know what we stand for. Not politics and ideologies, but theology. We stand for Jesus. We stand with the gospel. We stand to give hope to lost, hurting people. Paul picks up on this and magnifies the words of Jesus when he's writing to the Philippian believers and he exhorts them to live differently than those who are around them. He calls on believers to be blameless and innocent, therefore shining as lights. We just got out of the study of Philippians, and that's exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Be blameless and innocent. Shine before the world. There's the verse on the screen. We live in the midst of a crooked and gener- twisted generation, so we need to shine as lights. Let's get back to Jonah here. When the captain went below the deck and stumbled upon Jonah sleeping among the cargo, He had no idea that Jonah was the prophet of God. Think about that. The captain doesn't come down and say, prophet of God, call upon Yahweh and let him save us out of this dire situation. No, this polytheistic pagan captain comes down with that polytheistic multiple gods type of mentality and says, hey, we've been calling on our gods. You get up and call on your God and surely one of them will save us. He had no idea he's the prophet of God. He has no idea that he walks and talks with the Lord on high. He took him for just another person like himself. And that is a sad testimony. And so Christian, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Do people around you know that you walk with Jesus? Do people around you know that you have faith in Christ? Do your coworkers recognize your walk? Can the people in your neighborhood see the light of Christ shining from your home? Now, I'm not talking about what you're against. We all have things that we're against. Here's what the problem with us as Christians in America. Many times we're known for what we're against. And we need to stand against some things. But let's be known for what we're for. And what we need to be for is Jesus and the gospel and the love of people and the hatred of sin. But we're not going to hate the person who's in sin. We're going to love them to Jesus. But people ought to know that we know Jesus for that to be a reality. They see that you have love for other people. Do they see you in a generous and hospitable way? See, your faith ought to be evident and on display before others. It's going to take, it's going to make people uncomfortable. Sure. I've told you before, I've been around people and I got to be careful these days because more and more people come to our church. I can't always say my neighbor. Uh, I can't say those things like that or people I meet on the street, but I've been around people and, and, um, I've told you before, I don't drink alcohol for a lot of reasons. Number one, I just don't like it, never have liked it. And, and so, uh, you know, you come to a person, you get invited over to a person's house and they want to stick a, a beer in your hand. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm good. You got water, or you got a soda or something like that. And, and so I've been around people that just makes them so uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. And I'm like, it's fine. You drink what you want. I'll drink what I want. And, and we're all good. And so, but they think that because I'm a pastor and they've got to walk a certain way around me. No, you don't have to just be yourself. I'm going to love you regardless right? They need, to be, they need to know that you walk with Jesus. Here's the second thing. Got to hurry this morning. Story of a Sunday morning. <laughs> a believer should be spiritually engaged in the lives of others. So these lessons are flowing one to the other. So they need to know that I walk with Jesus 
And now a believer should be spiritually engaged in their lives. So it's not just that they know I go to church. It's not just they know I, I belong down there at Red Lane. It's not that they know that, yeah, I'm a, a believer in Jesus. They also need to know that I'm spiritually engaged in their life. That ought to be evident. That ought to be a reality. The captain here is calling on the prophet to pray. Get up. Why are you sleeping? Call on your God. Was there anything that ought to be more familiar to the prophet than prayer? He walks and talks with the Lord. He walks and talks for the Lord. So listening and speaking to God are what prophets do. They are the ones who stand in the gap between the Lord and the people. They're spiritually engaged in the battle. But what is Jonah here doing? He's not engaged. He's disengaged. He's turned off his transponder. He's no longer hearing from the Lord. The Lord is still speaking. The Lord is still sending. The Lord is still working to get his attention to use this rebellious, subversive servant, but he's asleep. When called upon to pray on behalf of a band of perishing pagans, what does Jonah do? He basically refuses. Now, we're reading between the lines here, but when he says, arise, get up and pray, Jonah, it's... What it tells us here is there's no indication that he did that. In fact, as we get into the following verses next week, what we're going to see is he's going to say, basically, I'm not going to pray, but I'm the problem, so just throw me overboard, which I believe is a way for him to escape the calling of God in his life. He would rather just die. Getting a little ahead of myself, a little taste the next week. We need to be spiritually engaged. Jonah's refusing. And so in refusing this, he's denying lost men. Think about this. He's denying lost men an opportunity for the hope of the Lord's salvation. Perhaps Jonah feels he cannot tell them of the Lord's mercy because he's refusing to go and tell the people in Nineveh of the Lord's mercy. So maybe he's being uh, not a hypocrite here. If I'm going to deny those people, I'm going to deny these people. I'd say two wrongs never make a right. But his refusal is denying men who need to hear from God, who need to be saved by God, an opportunity for salvation. All around him are people who want a solution to escape death, but Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the solution. Arise, call on your God. Jonah, the prophet of God, has the solution because he knows the solution, and yet he will not engage. And so for us as Christians, are there people around you who are looking for a solution to escape death? Absolutely. There's people all around us who are looking for a solution to escape death. Who dies in this world? Let me just ask a question. What's the percentage of people who die in this world? 100%. It's pretty good, right? We're all about percentages these days. We want to know the tally on things. Here's what it is. 100% of the people who are born will die. And if we've learned anything through the COVID season over the last year and a half, it's this. People are scared to death of dying. They know. It's really helped open our eyes to our own mortality. People know today, perhaps more than ever before in recent years, that the end of life is looming out there on the horizon. It is inevitable. Begs the question, why is death even a part of this world? It's part of the fall, right? Go back to Genesis 2. God says to Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Adam and Eve ate of that tree, that tree, and what did they do? They died. 
Physically, they died about eight or 900 years later, but they immediately died spiritually. So the spiritual reality, what God was saying is, when you eat of this tree, you will die. Spiritually, that's what he's speaking of. And the consequences play itself out physically as well. And as soon as they ate that fruit, they recognized, hey, there's something wrong with me. There's shame I've never experienced before. They begin to try to cover themselves. They're hiding from God. They're fighting amongst themselves. They're blaming everyone around them for their own sin and their own situation. The death that Jesus or that the Lord God prophesied and told them about was coming to fruition. And today we die physically because of sin. That sin has been perpetuated through every generation. Every subsequent generation from Adam has been born into sin. And it is our nature and that is the reason we sin or disobey God's command. And yet in all of that, what do we see? We see the graciousness of God. God there in the garden could have said, Adam, I gave you one command to, uh, of what not to do. Here's the one thing you, w- that was off limits, and you've transgressed that. I'm done with you. I'm starting over. But that's not what God did at all. The most be- one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible, I believe, is at the end of Genesis chapter 3, where just before he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, God takes an animal and sacrifices it, and from that animal creates a clothing from the skins to cover their shame it's a picture of the gospel it's a picture of what jesus would ultimately do for us on the cross god is gracious you see the meta narrative the grand story of the bible is redemption all of the 66 books are coalescing around that story of redemption coalescing around what would culminate there at the cross and the life that comes from the cross And so if God is so engaged in the spiritual lives of others, how could we, as God followers, believers in Jesus Christ, not also be just as spiritually engaged in the life of others? Jonah should have cared and been engaged with those on the ship. He should have been a source of blessing and hope. Instead, he was the cause of their doom. May we have open eyes hearing ears and a tender heart to the needs of those around us leads us to a third lesson an unbeliever is hopeless without the spiritual investment of a believer think about that an unbeliever is hopeless without the spiritual investment of a believer Someone who's outside of Christ can't find hope unless someone in Christ brings that hope to them Go with me to the latter part of verse 6 again. The captain says, perhaps the God, speaking of Jonah's God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What's going on here? What we find is that this pagan captain was enough of a theologian to recognize that God's help largely comes through the spiritual investment of his people. Jonah, I need you to call on your God because perhaps it's your God who's going to speak into this situation. Perhaps it's your God who's going to come down and save us from this dire situation where the ship is literally being ripped apart. He understood that he could not be helped unless someone's God, who they were beseeching, would come and interject himself. You see, when the Lord intends to do something in a person's life or among a people, he always moves first among his people. Now, I don't understand why the Lord works that way, right? We're, we're pretty inefficient, and if we're walking in the 
rebellion of Jonah. We're, not, we're still believers. We're still Christ followers. And yet we're not following him. We're walking into guilty distance. And yet he will continue to, to want to use us. I would, if I was the Lord, I would be wiping my hands and be like, you guys are done. Have fun with the devil in a place called hell. That's what I would do, but it's because I don't have the heart Jesus has, right? Why does he graciously work with us? I don't know the answer to that question, but in his sovereignty and in his providence and in his grace, he's chosen to do so. But to me, it seems like the things would work a whole lot better and more efficient if he would just reach out, work from the outside to reach people, and yet he's chosen otherwise. He calls his people to invest in others. How are we to do that? What are, what are the ways we're to invest? Let me just give you simply uh, two of them. I'm sure there are more. But for the sake of time, let me give you two. First of all, God calls believers to invest in others through prayer. Jonah is called to pray, right? So one of the ways we spiritually invest in other peoples is that we pray for them. We're called to pray for the needs of others. Think about this. God's activity runs on the rails of the prayers of his people. There's no doubt that he does not need our prayers. God is not like the gods of mythology. Any of you guys study Roman or Greek mythology? Those gods are basically just humans in some sort of divine uh, form in mythology. And literally, they gain their strength from prayers. You think God gains strength from his people praying? In other words, we could take strength from God by not praying? That's not our God at all. The Bible tells us that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. We cannot add one, however you measure power, <laughs> One kilowatt to the, to the powerfulness of Almighty God. There's nothing we could do to take or to add to him. He's not like other gods. And yet, God invites us to participate in his activity among others by praying on their behalf. Secondly, God calls believers to invest in others through proclamation. We're commissioned to go and tell. God could do a much better job proclaiming the gospel than we do, and yet he's chosen us to share that love, his love, with others. Seems like it would make a little bit more sense if God did some sort of miraculous thing and, and wrote it in the sky or, or formed some sort of just out-of-the-world supernatural way of proclaiming his love, and yet he's not chosen to do that. He's chosen to use vessels of clay to deliver the most crucial and important and expensive message the world's ever known. And many times when we share the gospel with someone else, we're fumbling through it. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. Sometimes I get a little tongue-tied. Amen? A couple weeks ago, I couldn't even speak for about three minutes. That was fun. That was real fun. God uses ordinary people to do super ordinary things, extraordinary things, just because he chooses to do so. Romans chapter 10, I think these verses will be on the screen for us, reminds us of what God wants to do through our lives. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to pre preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
What God is telling us here through Paul in, in the book of Romans is that the gospel is available to all people, but the only way all those people can hear it and respond to it is if we take it to them. And so it's got to have a person, an evangelist that will share it. That evangelist is discipled and equipped and sent by a church. We all play a part in propagating the gospel to people or other ways to invest spiritually in those who are around us. But these are perhaps the two most profound ways to do so. Jonah had an opportunity to pray for his shipmates who were fearful, and he had an opportunity to preach the message of hope to men's whose hearts were soft and pliable. He chose to be silent. He missed the great opportunity and put them in greater danger. So how can we remain alert and not be like Jonah? How can we be alert and not miss the opportunities that are around us, the opportunities to invest spiritually in the people that God has put in our path? Let me give you three alert actions real quickly. Number one, stay close to God in order to stay clean before God. My mentor and friend Johnny Hunt always says stay close and clean. I tweaked that a little bit this week just for emphasis here. Stay close to God in order to stay clean before God. You see, if you're walking at a guilty distance, you're going to look like you're walking at a guilty distance. You're going to look like the world. You're going to look like the sin that you're walking in. And so we want to stay close to God so that our hearts are clean before God. Here, Jonah was running away from the presence of the Lord. And so it should not surprise us that he looked like he was running away from the presence of the Lord. Again, the captain never recognized him as the prophet. And it's not just because he didn't wear the collar that some denominations wear today that makes priests and, and, and pastors very recognizable. It's not that he was not wearing a robe or some sort of uh, indicator of a prophet. He was dressed like I would, normal clothes, everyday person. But there ought to be something about our lives that says, hey, he's different. Hey, she's different. Jonah was running from the Lord. And when we run from God, it creates a guilty distance between you and the Lord. It's a fact that when you're not walking with him, but rather walking in sin, you will not be inclined to spiritually invest in people. Second action, pray for the spiritual and physical needs of others. Jonah's called on to pray. What does prayer do? Well, prayer opens our eyes to the needs and opportunities that are around us. You may say, well, I don't know what to pray. We'll just begin to pray Pray for the needs that you do know about. Pray for individual. Ask the Lord to, to lead you in praying for people. But prayer for us engages our heart with God's heart. You see, when we begin to commit, I'm going to pray for, for these individuals, we're engaging the heart of God, and his heart begins to permeate our heart. We take it on. And so when a need arises, you're ready to rise and go. You will begin to pray now for your lost family members, your, your friends who, who run in the circles that you run in, your neighbors, your coworkers, our kids that are going back to school, if you're playing for your classmates and your teammates and whoever else that's in our life. If you will begin to pray for them, then eventually you will have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But if you never pray, it's doubtful that you'll ever be ready to share. And the third thing is to simply share the gospel with others. If you want to be alert, pray for them and be ready to share the gospel with them. If we're going to move, the rubber has to meet the road at some point. The wheels have to turn. If we're going to be Christians who make an eternal investment in the lives of those who are around us, what do we do? we got to open our mouths. How do you make an eternal investment in someone's life if you don't speak eternal words to them? 
I can't hope you into heaven, but I can open my mouth and preach and give you an opportunity to believe on Jesus. I can't open my mouth and invest in you spiritually. So I've got to do that. See, we cannot sleep our way through life while people around us are perishing and meeting the devil's hell. We've got to get serious about all this. That should have been a place to say amen to somebody. Here's what we're going to do this fall. Man, I, I don't care about the clock. John, if you'll take that clock, come downstairs and throw it out in the road. I feel a lot better this morning. Here's what we're going to do this fall. Just in a couple weeks. And all of our small groups, from students on up, we're going to be teaching you how to share the gospel. It's a simple way. It's called the three circles. We've done it uh, in the past. A few years ago, we, we preached through a series. And I came back and I did a little uh, mini-series around it as well. We did it on Wednesday nights for a while. So this is not new to us as a church. It's new to a lot of you because you're new to our church. But if we have people in our families and on our workplaces and in our schools and in our neighborhoods who are not followers of Jesus Christ, what is the danger on their life? Dying in me to devil's hell. The consequences that come with living in sin. How do we combat that? We lovingly share the gospel with them and it's on them to believe. But we want to equip you so that you have every tool imaginable to take the gospel, to use your testimony, and invest in them spiritually. So I hope you'll be with us for those six weeks in this fall. Uh, we're starting September 8th, I believe, whatever the Sunday is, right after Labor Day. We're going to begin that. It'll go through the middle part of October. But we're going to teach you. There's going to be opportunities. Uh, it's not going to be like, come in here, and we're just going to give you this, or this monologue of teaching. There's going to be a short teaching time, and then there's going to be all this practice time. And we're going to say, hey, let's repeat this. Let's get some repetitions here. Let's work this out. And we're going to do small groups in a way that we've not done small groups ever before. It's going to be hands-on. It's going to be working with a neighbor. It's going to be working with a partner because we want to equip you so that you can share the gospel sitting down at a coffee shop on a napkin, scratching it out with a friend that you've known for 20 years and saying, this is what's changed my life. I just wanted to share it with you. We believe the gospel is that important. Amen? There's all kinds of unrest in this world. We see it on the news, on the other side of the world. Now there's growing fear that terrorism is going to become the prominent threat it was 20 years ago. It's amazing. Many of our kids have not even experienced what we did 20 years ago. We see the growing unrest from the virus that continues to terrorize people here and there. What we see is just people are scared. How do we combat fear? We take them to the one who knows them best. We see division growing among racial, gender, and sexual areas. All of that. We see wokeism infecting every aspect of our culture where we can't even recognize what was once a great American culture. I don't know about you, but it seems like things are spinning out of control. What do we do in that situation? We take people back and say, here's the God who holds all things in his hands. Today, it kind of feels like we're on a ship being tossed and fro, and, and everything that we've known to be secure in our lives is breaking apart. What do we do? We say, God is still in control. And we pray, 
and we invest and we lean in and we bring people with us. That's what we're to do. We don't be like Jonah, who is a sleeping servant, oblivious to what's going on. No, we have eyes that are open, but we're not fearing what's before us, but we recognize what's before us, but we're not fearing because we're tethered to the one who holds everything in his hands. And we bring that hope and that life and that message of forgiveness to people who desperately need it. They don't know they need it. They know they need something. They just don't know what it is. Let's preach the gospel.